All right, let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Last week, Paul left us on a cliffhanger. Uh, He wrote about how this affliction had come upon the Thessalonian church. Just as he had told them beforehand, it was going to happen. He said, listen, I told you, I preached to you, I tried to encourage you, I tried to establish you beforehand, and I warned you that affliction was coming. But even still, after Paul was separated from the church, he was very anxious, concerned, because he had heard what had happened to the believers there, and he was worried that maybe they had lost their faith. And he was desperate for news from the church that they hadn't fallen away. And so finally, he says in verse 5 of chapter 3, when he could wait no longer, he took matters into his own hands. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy, we'll learn today, to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And so Paul was anxious to receive Timothy back because he was going to bring with him news what had happened to this church that he and his fellow workers in the gospel were forced to leave too soon. He felt like we orphaned you. You were like our children and like a father and mother separated from their children. That's how we felt. Are you standing firm in the faith or have you caved under the pressure? It was immaterial to Paul whether they had lost their jobs or their homes or their properties or even their life or their freedoms, the thing that Paul wanted to know is, have you lost your faith? You can lose all the rest, but have you lost your faith? Brothers and sisters, Paul says, please tell me. I was anxious to hear news back that you hadn't lost your faith. As we turn this morning to the second half of chapter 3, Paul's response to the news that he receives back from the church reveals some basic presuppositions about his faith. Now, what is a presupposition? Presupposition is basically something that you assume before. It's truths that you assume beforehand. It's truths that you just simply take for granted. They're guiding principles that you don't even think about. They're just things that are that you hold to be true at all times and they guide the way you act and when you respond in this world. So as we watch Paul receive this news back from the Thessalonians, I want us to think about what presuppositions, what realities are, is Paul assuming to be true that elicit the kind of response that we see from Paul in verses 6 through 13. So if you found 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, let's stand together as we receive the perfect, unerring, life-giving word of God. Paul writes in verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For we now, for now we live 
if you are standing fast in the Lord. But what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Amen. You may be seated. When we talk about presuppositions, foundational truths, what we are talking about is a person's worldview. A worldview is the set of foundational truths and presuppositions through which a person sees everything around them. I mean, it's in the name, worldview. It's the way, the truths that shape the way we view the world. And as we think about Paul's worldview, as it's revealed here in this letter this morning, we find evidence of three foundational presuppositions, truths that guide and steer the way he responds to everything in his life. Things he takes for granted about himself and his reality. Truths that run counterculturally against everything that the world stands for and claims to believe. These three things Paul takes for granted about himself are actually the opposite of what the world tells us is true. And depending on how much we have been influenced by the world, these things, these truths may come to us as correctives or they may come to us as comforts. And I find in my Christian life, I usually need a little bit of both. Here they are. These are the things that Paul takes for granted about himself. I am not alone. Number one, I am not alone. Secondly, I am not sufficient. I am not sufficient. And thirdly, I am nothing without love. I am nothing without love. So I am not alone. I am not sufficient. I am nothing without love. These are things the world denies. These are things that are intimately woven into the worldview of Paul and affect everything in his response to the Thessalonians and the news he receives about them. So let's look first at presupposition number one. I am not alone. This presupposition stands in direct contradiction to a culture whose motto is something like, be true to thine own self and to thine own self be true. In a world that says, don't you let anyone get in the way of your personal happiness. You're the main character of your story. In fact, you're the only character in your story that matters. No child, no lover, no husband, no family, no pregnancy, no person, no people should deter you from getting what you want in this life. Paul operates 
on a totally different wavelength, and it's this, I am not alone. We heard this truth in Paul's words from chapter 2, verse 8. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our very selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul knows in the depth of his soul that he is not alone in the story that he is living. To be in Christ, Paul knows, is to be intimately connected with brothers and sisters. There are no only children in the family of God. There are no prosthetic limbs in the body of Christ. As much as, sadly, our evangelical culture here in America and our independent spirit as Americans would convince us that I can do this walk with Jesus on my own. Paul says, no, I can't. I am not alone. I depend on others in the faith and others depend on me. And that's what we see is bearing itself out in Paul's response and his interaction with the Thessalonians. And for Paul, this truth is a great comfort to him. I'm not alone. Look at verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you also remember us kindly and long to see us as long as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Paul says, in the midst of whatever distress or affliction that I'm experiencing, the fact that I know that on the other side of this European continent, there's a group of people who believe the same Jesus and in the midst of their afflictions are also seeking to stand fast in the Lord, that brings me such comfort to know that I am not alone. I'm not the only one enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. My brothers and sisters are being faithful as well. Paul says, verse 8, this is the key verse. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. This is the anxious news that Paul was waiting to hear back from the Thessalonians. Really, this verse, this is the climax of the book. This is what he had been waiting for. His very life, he says, my life was hanging on whether I received news that you were standing in the faith or had fallen. That's what resulted in Paul even writing this letter. He hears this news and instantly he sits down and he pens this letter and the first word out of his mouth, the body of this letter, chapter one, verse two, is the word, thank you, God. Thank you, God. I am not alone. I'm not alone. My brothers are standing in the faith. This kind of interdependence between believers, between churches, between ministers of the gospel, this is the beauty of the kingdom of God, that you can give your heart so much to a people that they can make or break it. Are you and I guarded in our relationships at church? 
Do we keep our brothers and sisters at arm's length so that they can't really ever do any real damage to us? To keep our relationship shallow in the church is essentially to say, I'm operating from a worldview where I believe I am alone. No one depends on me, and I'm not dependent on anyone. My faith stands on its own, but it's not true. Your faith, my faith, Paul's faith rests on the sustaining work of the Spirit in our brothers and sisters. We are dependent on one another. We rise, we fall together. Think about it from the perspective of the Thessalonians for a minute. This was a guiding presupposition in their faith. I am not alone. Their thinking is, I want to remain steadfast and firm in the faith because I know there's a man who is working hard for the gospel on the other side of this world, and when he hears news of how I'm standing in the faith, it's going to give him great comfort. This isn't a wrong motive. This is a very godly motive for us to want to continue in the faith. When I despair, your faith carries me. When you're hurting or you're tempted to fall away, my faith strengthens you and lifts you up. That's how it's supposed to work. I'm not alone. You're not alone. Together, we will make it all the way home. Jesus hasn't merely died for you. He hasn't just died for me. Jesus has died for us. He is our Lord Jesus. The Christian life should be risky in this way. We should give our hearts so much to the people, so much to the people of God, and share our lives so much with other believers that if they fall away from the faith, we will be shattered. This is why we have a church covenant. It's because we want our lives to be interlocked and bound to one another so that when members of this church fall away, we don't just shrug our shoulders and move on. It is utterly shattering to us. We want to be bound to one another. We want to affirm this truth. I am not alone. I'm a part of a people who are being saved by the blood of Jesus. Is this a presuppositional truth in your life? Is it a guiding thing you take for granted that your faith is deeply integrated with other believers that you cannot walk the Christian walk on your own? I sat and thought about this morning just for a few minutes and I just was imagining what it would do to me if one day I received news that Miss Joy had just decided she didn't believe in Jesus anymore. <laughs> How earth-shattering that would be for me. Or to find out that Nathan had walked away from his family and away from the faith in order to pursue an affair. How much my faith would be absolutely shaken to find out. Or that Sarah, who had been so faithful here for so many years, just decided one day, you know what, my faith's just not that important anymore and I don't need the church. Our faith does not exist in a vacuum. I am not alone. I have a friend who, who lives in St. Louis. I sometimes talk about him, Ian. And uh, I don't know if I could continue <laughs> if I were to get a phone call from him and he said, you know what, Chad, I just, I just don't believe in Jesus anymore. I've renounced the faith. I'm walking away. 
But on the same account, as much as those relationships would utterly shatter me to the core if these people were to walk away from the faith, on the same account, when I get on the phone and I hear news of how Ian is pursuing the Lord despite uncertainty about his future, and I hear about how gently and compassionately he is loving and caring for his wife and how he's serving his church, and I hear about how through tears he and his family are caring for his sister who went through pregnancy and stage four cancer at the same time. I praise the Lord because it comforts my soul to know I am not alone. Amen. For now I live because my brothers and sisters are standing in the Lord. That has to be true. That has to be a foundational truth that we hold to. Number one, I am not alone. The second presupposition that we see shaping Paul's response to the Thessalonians is this. I am not sufficient. I am not sufficient. So Paul receives news that in the midst of this great trial and affliction, the Thessalonians have stood up under the trial. They have not lost the faith. They've not given in to the temptation to fall, fall away. And he is just absolutely bewildered with thankfulness to the Lord. Verse 9. For what thankful, thanksgiving can I return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul first admits, he just says, I am overflowing with thanksgiving because Thessalonians, you supplied something that was lacking in me. Do you know what it was? Joy. Oh, what rejoicing I have had on your behalf. I was lacking it in Thessalonians. This good news I received about you has supplied what was lacking. He says, what thanksgiving is sufficient what can I return to God in exchange for what he has given to me through you? There aren't enough words. There isn't enough praise to even begin to scratch the surface of all the joy that God has supplied to me because of you. And Paul continues to pray and plead with the Lord. He says, night and day, I want to return the favor. I want to supply what is lacking in you. Paul is operating according to this assumption I am not sufficient. There is something lacking in me. There's something lacking in you. In and of myself, I am not enough to meet all of my needs. Paul takes for granted that this is true about himself and about the Thessalonians, about any believer. There's something that I lack that another believer is meant to supply. I am not sufficient in and of myself. Again, this runs counter-culturally to the narrative that we hear and see lived out in the world around us every day. The world says, you lack nothing. In fact, you are perfect. The only thing you lack is confidence in yourself. You don't need to add anything. You certainly don't need anyone else to supply something that you're lacking. It's interesting how this false narrative that I am sufficient in and of myself, is playing itself out in today's generation. I was reading an article 
in the Atlantic this week by Jean Twinge. And in it, Twinge is talking about research that she's been doing with what she calls the iGen, which is today's teenagers and their interaction with smartphones. She writes about a conversation she had with a 12 or 13 year old named Athena, and Twinge writes, she told me she'd spent most of the summer hanging out alone in her room with her phone. That's just the way her generation is, she said, quote, I think we like our phones more than we like actual people. Athena continues, I've been on my phone more than I've been with actual people. My bed has like an imprint of my body. She continues, teens in turn seem to be content with this homebody arrangement, not because they're so studious, but because their social life is lived on their phone. They don't need to leave home to spend time with their friends. I fear these truths are not just true of today's teens, though. This is everybody. This is the result of a worldview that believes, whether they're willing to admit it or not, I am sufficient. Smartphones give us this false sense of self-sufficiency. It results in plenty of face time and less and less actual face-to-face -face time. I don't need other people. I'm just fine all alone in my room by myself. I don't need the messiness of other people's lives. I have everything I need right here. I am sufficient. Twinge writes, The results could not be clearer. Teens, teens who spend more time than average on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. And those who spend more time than average on non-screen activities are more, more likely to be happy. We don't need a survey to tell us that. This is the very truth the Apostle Paul is showing us here in this text. We are made to behold one another face to face. The Lord Jesus himself was not satisfied to rel relate with us remotely. He came down from heaven. The Apostle John tells us that the gospel we receive is a message of a word that was heard, that was seen with eyes, that was looked upon, that was touched with hands. Jesus is the kind of Savior who says, put your finger here, Thomas. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. We who have put our faith in Jesus Christ believe that we have this great hope that the one who has been raised for our forgiveness of sins, this is the eternal life we are looking forward to. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it his servants will worship him. They will see his face. That's what we're looking forward to. We're going to see Jesus face to face. Paul writes to the Corinthians, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, ah, then, what we really long for, face to face. What we need is not to be social. You can be social on your phone. What we need is to be present. A recognition of my own insufficiency drives me to be present with the people of God. Because they have something that is meant to supply what I know is lacking in me, particularly in my faith. 
I need to see, I need to hear, I need to touch, I need to have experiences and be present. I need to be face to face with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to sit down and share a meal with a widow in my church. I need to be in the living rooms of my brothers and sisters. I need to get all sweaty with Nathan out on a trail behind Boy's Farm because these are the ones who are supplying what is lacking in me because I am not sufficient. God is supplementing my faith as we spend time with one another face to face. I am not sufficient. This is the heartbeat behind Paul's prayer in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I need to see you face to face. And that's what I'm praying and pleading with the Lord to make happen. It's those who are confined, who are prevented from being present with God's people, who truly come to know what it means to know this truth in the depth of their soul that I am not sufficient. If you need to find out about this, just go to the nursing home this week. Go spend some time with Miss Mary Clark. Sit beside Miss Daphne's bedside and they will tell you the thing they long for more than anything else is to be present with God's people on Sunday morning. It's heartbreaking. I just want to go to church. And then I want you to try to cheer them up by saying, well, you can just listen to a sermon on your phone. You can just go read an encouraging article on Desiring God on your phone. How hollow does that sound in that moment? It's not sufficient. We need each other. And as our faith grows through one another, we realize how much this is true. I am not sufficient, but do you know what? The Lord Jesus is. Well, finally, the truth that underpins Paul's whole worldview is this. Number three, I am nothing without love. I am nothing without love. Paul knows in the depth of his soul that his entire existence, existence hangs on this truth. He has come to know the love of God and he is nothing without that love. And this is true of every human being, whether they want to admit it or not. In the depths of their soul, with every fiber of their being, they are trying to cover up the truth. I'm nothing without love. We substitute all kinds of things for love. We say, I'm nothing without my gender identity. That's what I really need. I'm nothing without my racial identity. I'm nothing without sexual expression. I'm nothing without my political ideology. That's what really makes me live. Pop star Haley Steinfeld sums up this sort of self-erotic, self-centered existence that so many of us pretend is fulfilling. I love me, gonna love myself. No, I don't need anybody else. It's all a cover-up. It's all an act. Just because we say it does not make it any more true. We are nothing without love. And this is why Paul prays and pleads with the Lord for this very thing in verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. This is the man who 
famously wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Someone who really believes and sees a lack of love in his own heart or in the hearts of his brothers and sisters is someone who is going to get down on their knees and beg and plead day and night and implore with the Lord, please, God, pour more of your love into my heart. Please give my brothers and sisters more love for one another, more love for Jesus. I am nothing without your love. Look at all of the results that Paul expects to flow out of this increase and abounding, overflowing love. Verse 12 again. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that with the result that he may establish your hearts. There is no faith without love. God has poured his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. If we don't have love, we don't have the Spirit. If we don't have the Spirit, we do not have faith. There's no faith. If we don't have love. Love is what cements us in our faith. Love is the roots that support and feed the tree. Love is the foundation of the house of faith. The life-giving love of God. I am nothing without love. There's no unity without love. Paul says he prays that their hearts may be established. He says your hearts, as in y'all's hearts, may be established together in unity. It's our love for Jesus that binds us together as the people of God. Love is the lifeblood that pumps in the veins of the body of Christ. We are not one until we are united in our love for Jesus Christ, our Savior. I am nothing without love. There's no holiness without love, so that he may establish your hearts blameless, in holiness before our God and Father. Love is what sets us apart. God's love in us is what makes us holy and elevates and, and sets us apart from the rest of the world. This is what Jesus said. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what's going to set you apart and make you holy that you have love. Love produces holiness Love is what causes us to live and to act and to obey God. It's our love that motivates us to righteous living because we love God and we want to do what pleases Him. It's the love of Jesus that gives us confidence that we are blameless in holiness before God our Father because we know that before we knew the love of Jesus, we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because we'd done works of righteousness, but because of His great mercy. And we have holiness because God is a God of love. And He has shown that love and bestowed it upon us. I wonder whether this morning you know that love, a love that has the confidence on Father's Day to call God your Heavenly Father. To know that when you come into His presence, you have nothing to fear.
and only left. Do you know the truth of this statement? I am nothing without the love of my Father. Lastly, there is no hope without love. All this abounding love gives us a great hope, Paul says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. When you look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ, what do you feel? Is it hope? Is it fear? When Jesus comes back, he's going to destroy you. He's going to slaughter, condemn, judge you, send you to hell. For all those who have repented and believed in his name, the prophet Zephaniah promises that when Jesus comes back, our mighty one who saves us, he will rejoice over us with gladness and he will quiet us by his love. He will exult over us with loud singing. That's what we hope for. Because we've come to know the love of God. I wonder this morning whether your spirit bears witness with Paul's spirit that these things are true. That I am not alone. Is that a comfort, comfort to you? Maybe Satan is trying to convince you that you are alone in your circumstances, but that is not the case. You have brothers and sisters here who are struggling and, and who are endeavoring just one step in front of the other down the path that leads to eternal life together. In what specific ways are you resisting the temptations of this world to live as though you are self-sufficient? In what ways are you admitting, I know that I am lacking, and lacking in a way that God is only going to provide for me through the faith and the interaction with flesh and blood brothers and sisters in my local church and have you come to terms with what all of us know in the very depths of our being this morning that I am nothing without love may Paul's correctives this morning be transformed into eternal comforts to us in Christ Jesus our Lord let's pray God, I thank you for the way that you have comforted my heart through your word. I am not alone. I am not sufficient. I am nothing without love. God, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. I pray that I've been even an ounce of encouragement and comfort to them. In speaking to them your word, we pray that you would pour your love into our hearts that we would lean on the sufficiency of Jesus for everything we need. We thank you that you haven't left us alone. You've given us your spirit and you've given us the body of Christ to encourage one another. We pray that day by day you'd help us to be faithful, Lord Jesus. We put one foot in front of the other, that our faith would be a great encouragement to others. In Jesus' name we trust and pray. Amen.